This special edition of VP Live Talk Radio is brought to you by theplumeroom.com as well as smokelessimage.com. Support them because they support us. Without them, there would be no VP Live. Thank you. This is a special presentation of VP Live Talk Radio. What we're going to be doing this week is I'm going to be playing in its entirety the Richard Blumenthal Dan Carter debate that took place today, October 23rd, on WFSB Channel 3 here in Connecticut. The debate was wonderful. Dan Carter did phenomenal. He did a great job. In fact, there's currently a poll right now on WFSB where they've asked the listeners and viewers of the uh, debate who they thought won. Last I looked, Dan Carter had 68% of the vote. Richard Blumenthal had 34% of the vote, which is fantastic. Congratulations, Dan. It's wonderful. But what still is bothering me, what still is really, really just bothering me, is the lack of support from Vapors, from our community for Dan Carter. He's taking on the worst anti-vaping senator in the United States of America. Richard Blumenthal, for years, has been doing everything in his power to regulate our industry out of existence. And we have a chance. We have a chance right now to tell him, you know what? We're not going to tolerate it. In fact, you're fired. And you want to know how you fire Richard Blumenthal? You support Dan Carter. That's how you get him fired. You support Dan Carter for Senate so that he gets in and he supports us. He supports Vapors. He's going to fight for us. He's not going to come after us. I find it disgraceful that advocacy groups are doing nothing at all to support him, not even mentioning his name, because according to some of them, quote, he doesn't have a chance of winning, so we're not going to waste our time. That's disgraceful. And it's absolutely pathetic that you have these advocates out there that have these podcasts and YouTube channels and websites and blogs who aren't even mentioning supporting Dan Carter. Absolutely disgraceful. Shame on all of you. We should have been supporting him all these months. You should have been sending him $5, $10, whatever you could afford. If you live in Connecticut, contacting his campaign, how can we help out? What can we do to support you? Make sure you go in November and vote. Vote for Dan. He has put himself out there to support us, and we we haven't given him the support back. It's sad. It's sad and pathetic. So please, there's there's, there's, there's not much time left. Support him. If you could give any sort of money to his campaign, please do. Vaporsforcarter.com. If you live in Connecticut, don't forget to vote. Now, I'm going to play for you, like I said, in its entirety, the Richard Blumenthal-Dan Carter debate. Earlier today, incumbent Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal and Republican State Representative Dan Carter met for a debate in the Senate race in Connecticut. This is about an hour. Now, Eyewitness News presents the campaign 2016 U.S. Senate debate. Good morning and thanks for joining us on this very special edition of Face the State, the United States Senate debate featuring Richard Blumenthal and Dan Carter. I'm Susan Raff. And I'm Dennis House. Thanks for joining us. This debate will be one hour with no commercial interruptions. We'll also be live streaming on WFSB.com and on our Facebook page. We welcome your comments 
during today's event. Each candidate will have two minutes to answer each question with a one-minute rebuttal. Let's meet the candidates. For the Democrats, we have Senator Richard Blumenthal, and for the Republicans, State Representative Dan Carter. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here on Face Good morning. A coin toss has determined that Senator Blumenthal will be asked the first question, and we'll begin with that now. Mr. Blumenthal, one of the first responsibilities of the next president will be to nominate someone to the U.S. Supreme Court. If President Trump or President Clinton came to you and asked for suggestions for a potential justice from Connecticut, who would you recommend for nomination, and what about the cases they presided over? indicates to you he or she would be a good justice, and why would your choice be better than your opponent's? Let me say, first of all, Dennis, thank you to you and Susan for having us. Thank you to WSFB for giving us this opportunity to speak today to the people of Connecticut, and thanks to everyone from Connecticut who is listening. I believe that Merrick Garland is a supremely well-qualified candidate for the United States Supreme Court. But most important, this has to be a decision by the President of the United States as to the best qualified in the country. I can think of a number of candidates in Connecticut. The United States Attorney for Connecticut, Deirdre Daly, is one who has the credential and background. But I believe that the United States Senate must do its job before the end of this year and have a hearing, hold a vote. It's a constitutional duty of the United States Supreme Court, and the failure of the United States Supreme Court to do its job is due directly to the obstructionism of the Republican majority. Now, I was a law clerk on the United States Supreme Court, and I was United States attorney, and have argued cases before the court. I have extraordinary respect and reverence for the court. We need to fill that vacancy as soon as possible because a 4-4 deadlock is damaging for the whole country. And that's why I've been leading the fight to appoint and confirm the next justice for the United States Supreme Court. A 4-4 deadlock on the court simply infects that branch of government with the kind of gridlock we've seen all too often and all too prevalent in the legislative branch. And I believe the United States Supreme Court should do its job, hold a hearing, have a vote, and confirm Merrick Garland to be on the United States Supreme Court. Thank you, Mr. Blumenthal. Mr. Carter, you have two minutes. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, first I want to say thank you as well because, you know, as we know, it's been difficult to get a debate. And I think that, uh, you know, you have provided a, a source here for us to get these questions out in the open. And it's, it's, it's really something that's pretty important to do in this year. You know, with respect to the Supreme Court, you know, we get the question a lot, um, what kind of justices would you, would you want to put on the court? And, and I would say this, number one, uh, I don't think anybody should be afraid of hearings. I think that the Republicans should have supported hearings. I, if I were in those shoes, I would uh, advocate to my leadership that we, we hear the case. Now, whether or not, uh, you know, Justice Garland, you know, is the one we should put up, I don't know how anybody can make that case, uh, you know, prior to actually having the hearings in place. But with that said, you know, it is important that we provide the uh, court with the ability to do its job. And that's the question, you know, can 4-4 make a big difference? Uh, I'd like to see a ninth member on the Supreme Court. But for that matter, it's most important that we have the right person in that job. And when I look to somebody to be on the Supreme Court, I want to look for somebody who's not a judicial activist on either side 
side of the aisle. I want somebody, you know, when I look at their, their judicial history, that we, we, we take a look and we find that they're not biased one way or the other. And I think that's very important. And I think it's important to the citizens of, of the United States and the citizens of Connecticut because we have seen gridlock. And frankly, it's not the Supreme Court giving us a gridlock. It is, it is definitely the legislature, and I'm sure that we're, and the Congress. We're going we're gonna to have a lot of discussion about gridlock, I think, over the next uh, hour or so. So uh, that'll be my answer. Mr. Blumel, you have one yeah. minute to respond, to rebut. I, I think that the next justice on the United States Supreme Court ought to be a mainstream thinker who believes in the rule of law regardless of partisan differences and who has respect for past precedent and therefore will uphold Roe v. Wade. I believe that the next justice on the United States Supreme Court ought to be someone who has experience as a litigator, perhaps as a prosecutor, but a kind of hands-on experience that is essential. The decision should be made on the basis of the merits. Merrick Garland is a mainstream thinking thinker with experience as a prosecutor and fits the profile of someone I think should be confirmed, but at the very least he should be given a hearing and a vote before the end of the year. The Senate should do its job and its constitutional duty. Mr. Carter, the second question is for you. It concerns the economy, which is on everyone's minds these days. The job of a U.S. senator, in part, is to look at your state's interests in Washington and to bring home federal dollars. Yet this state is declining in its population, and polls show that people are unhappy with the high cost of living here. As a senator, what could you do and what would you do to improve life here in Connecticut and make this state more affordable? That's, that is an excellent question, and I'm, I'm glad that's one of the first ones because that is one of the most important things the United States Senator should be focused on. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we, we, have, we have had years of financial ruin here in Connecticut. Over the last six years, we've lived through two of the largest tax increases in our own history. Um, jobs are, are fleeing the state. I met a, met a family the other day at a Terryville Fair who is searching for a way to earn enough money so they can go get a job out of state. And, you know, that's been a big problem for our state here for a long time. We all know friends and neighbors who are leaving in droves. Uh, you know, the, as the job of the United States Senator, what I should be focused on is making important changes to uh, the tax codes. You know, looking down the line, you know, we have to make changes to our tax code to make it fairer and flatter. We need to reduce the say, number of brackets available. We need to reduce loopholes. We actually need to do something that's important to bring corporations back. You know, the reason that across the world you have tax havens, you know, down in the Caribbean, is because those, so, those folks bring in those companies because they're going to it stimulate their economy with those dollars. Well, I don't understand why the United States is in a tax haven. And one of the things we have to do is we have to make sure that we redo what we do with corporate taxation. Now, I know my opponent has talked about the fact that he supported the Bring Jobs Home bill. Well, it was a bill that was a message bill. It was empty. It didn't do anything to bring jobs home. And in fact, if you look out there, it was widely known that it was going to do very little to help get people back in this country. So, you know, at the end of the day, we need to reform format the corporate tax code, lower the interest rate, uh, lower the interest rate for S-Corps, and, and actually get these corporations back in the United States and, and get jobs to the folks who live here. That's number one. Number two is control our spending. Part of the problems in Connecticut has been the spending has been out of control. There's no question about it. It's the same at the federal level. When you have over almost $600 billion in deficit every year and $20 trillion in debt, it shows that we're not spending wisely. That needs to be important, and we need to support balanced budgets. Senator Blumenthal, you have two minutes to respond to the question on the economy. Thanks, Susan. And 
Thanks for that really important question. Here's what I've been doing to create jobs and drive the economy forward in Connecticut. And the federal government should help more and do better. And I've been leading the effort, principally focusing on investment. Investment in our national defense, which is bringing thousands of jobs to electric boats, Sikorsky and Pratt and & Whitney. Investment in our roads and bridges and rail and ports, our infrastructure, through the surface transportation bill that I've helped to lead and is bringing thousands of construction jobs to the state of Connecticut. Investment in skill training. People need the skills to fill the jobs that exist now, and there are jobs open, but also the jobs of the future, thousands of more jobs to be brought to this state by those investments. And of course, lowering taxes, tax credits for investment in R&D, investment in new capital and plant and machinery, lowering the medical device tax, all of that accomplished through my advocacy and part. And I'm going to continue the fight for tax credits to bring jobs home and stop the rewards and special breaks for companies that send jobs overseas. That's the idea of the Bring Jobs Home Act. It's also the idea of the Veterans Hiring Tax Credit Act, which gives tax breaks for hiring veterans rather than the kind of breaks we've seen for the big oil companies and for billionaires. And lowering the cost of doing business in Connecticut involves investment in our roads and bridges and rail, investment in our national defense to drive the economy forward, and in skill training that will provide the workforce we need to attract more companies to Connecticut. Mr. Carter, you have a one-minute rebuttal. Thank you. You know, it always strikes me as interesting that the answer to, um, you know, trying to improve our economy is investment, is spending more. Now, I'm not going to argue that we have a crumbling infrastructure. We, we need to work on the infrastructure of this state. We recognize that, and we're doing that, and we need to work together, federal and state, to make that happen. But I don't think the answer every time is going to be spending more money in every different program you can think of when, at the end of the day, we need to make sure we're spending a little more wisely. Now, with respect to the Bring Jobs Home Act, which my opponent had mentioned just a moment ago, you know, Senator, that, that act did nothing to bring jobs home or even penalize companies for moving out. In fact, moving out of state doesn't cost very much for these companies. It doesn't cost hardly anything at all. And the tax you know, ramification was somewhere around maybe $150 million over the entire course of a 10-year period for all the companies. That's not a big change or a big benefit to anybody, and it certainly doesn't help us. We need real structural change to the way we do business in Washington. It's broken, it's time to fix it, and people who've been there for 30 years aren't the people who are supposed to be fixing it for us. Our next question is for you, Senator Blumenthal. It is uh, a very important question on gun legislation here in Connecticut. Some of the toughest gun laws were passed, and now there is an effort in Congress to do that, but not much has been done. Can you talk to us about your position on guns? The no-fly, no-buy. Currently, those on the no-fly list are allowed to buy guns. Do you support this, and why? I strongly support the no-fly, no-buy law, which would prohibit people who are deemed too dangerous to board a plane from buying a gun, along with other sensible common sense measures like universal background checks, and taking guns away from domestic abusers who are under a court order. 
I've been working on this issue for two decades, and I was at the Sandy Hook Firehouse and then at the church that night with the Newtown families. But I've also stood and held hands and worked with loved ones of the victims of 30,000 people every year who die. This is a public health emergency, a crisis for our country. And these common sense measures must be passed and Congress cease to be complicit with the gun lobby. We are breaking the grip of the gun lobby. Now, my opponent and I have a disagreement on this issue. He voted against these kinds of common sense measures, including most recently, the ban on domestic abusers having guns. He has received an honors grade from the NRA, and that may be the reason. I think the NRA and the gun lobby have enough friends and defenders already in Washington. I'm going to continue the fight for these common sense measures, including a ban on terrorists buying guns, because I think they are essential to health and safety. If 33,000 people were dying in this country, the greatest, strongest country in the history of the world, we would deem it a public health emergency. We would take drastic, immediate action. That is the way we need to regard our gun violence problem in this country. Mr. Carter, you have two minutes. Thank you. Um, you know, obviously there's one thing we will agree on, I think, and that is we do have a gun problem in this country. We have people dying on our streets every day, and it does need to be solved. The question is, how do you get there? So first off, let me explain where I stand. Just after the shooting in Sandy Hook, I proposed some important legislation. Universal background checks. I proposed ways to look at you know, continuation training so people understood not to be complacent with firearms. I also addressed one of the most important challenges, and is how do we keep firearms out of the hands of somebody with a mental illness? None of that was looked at, because politically speaking, the only thing people needed to do at that moment was try to ban the gun that was used in that single shooting. That bill that I voted against in 2013 would have done nothing, nothing to prevent Sandy Hook from happening. I believe my legislation would. And I'll also say this. You know, my opponent and folks like him do not get the corner of the market on compassion for that community. I've been representing Newtown here for four years. I understand how divided people are on this issue. But I'll tell you this. People want to solve it, and the way to do it is to look at illegal gun trafficking in this country and provide resources to keep those guns off the street. There were a lot of good Democrats up in Hartford who voted against that bill. And the reason they did is they understood that this bill did nothing to actually protect lives. So I, I say to you, my opponent, why is nothing getting done on this issue? Because right now, everybody is focused on one part of it, trying to make the NRA and the pro-gun groups the boogeyman, when meanwhile, we have a serious problem that we have to challenge, we have to go after. And they've been totally impotent to do anything with it so far. Because they're busy raising money off of it, they're busy trying to exploit it in any way they can for their campaign coffers. And I say it's time to actually get out there, do background checks. It's important that we don't have people who are, are uh, labeled a terrorist be able to get a gun. I agree with all that. But let's, let's go after these, uh, these criminals on the streets and let's address where guns are actually falling into the hands of the wrong people. Senator Blumenthal, you have one minute. The reason why Congress has been complicit and failed to act is very simply that the gun lobby and the NRA have Congress in its grip. They give grades, as they did to my opponent, honors grades or endorsements, and we need to break that grip. 
And we can do it, as is shown by Connecticut, where a strong, bipartisan majority voted in favor of common sense proposals, putting Connecticut at the forefront of this effort to stop gun violence. But Connecticut's law is only as protective as the weakest state law, because guns travel across state borders. That's why we need national protective law. I know it won't be easy. But I'm going to work for that bipartisan majority, just like we had in Connecticut, involving a ban on illegal trafficking and straw purchases, a mental health program, and school safety. Thank you, Mr. Blumenthal. The next question goes to Mr. Carter first. Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server has been in the news for a year and a half, and there could continue to be fallout from it, even if she's elected. Should other public officials be able to do this in the future? And if not, what should Congress do to prevent the same thing from happening, and what should the punishment be for someone who does this in the future? We have two minutes. <laughs> you know, that's obviously one of the biggest questions going on in this, uh, this whole campaign era. So the way I look at it is this. Um, I don't think every public official should worry about whether or not they're on a private or public server. That doesn't matter so much. But when you have certain public officials who have access to classified information, that is the issue at, at hand with uh, Secretary Clinton. Because if you think about it, you know, I was in the Air Force for 10 years active duty, uh, some time in the reserves. I handled classified information along the way. I was trained to, I understood it. So was she. So the question is, you know, should somebody who has access, uh, access to that kind of information be using a private server? Probably not, because I think that's the rules would say otherwise. But it gets to the part of a larger issue. You know, the fact that this has been so, I, I'd say, controversial over the time, it goes to a question of trust and honesty in Washington. You know, that's the thing we should be focusing on. Like the fact that we talked a moment ago about Supreme Court hearings. You know, we should have hearings because transparency is more important than ever. It's why we have these debates. It's why I've been after my opponent to make sure we have an opportunity to actually answer questions that are out there that are important. People don't trust politicians in Washington because it's very clear that they go to Washington and do one thing and they come back here and say something else. That goes to the heart of what's wrong with Hillary Clinton and the email server. It's a matter of trust with the American people. So, you know, as far as classified information goes, if, if there ever comes a time that it's totally proven she you know, had classified information, she handled it you know, inappropriately, she should suffer the same sort of uh, fine or punishment as any of the rest of us would. Mr. Blumenthal, you have two minutes. Uh, very simply, Dennis, uh, private servers should never be used for classified material. And in fact, we get classified briefings and we see classified material, but only in a special room in the Capitol building that is designated for the viewing of that classified material. We are barred from taking any electronic devices into that area. These kinds of precautions are all the more important in light of the potential for hacking into our system. And cyber warfare and cyber attack are an increasing threat to our national security. And the United States should be formulating stronger policies to deter and prevent those cyber attacks, which are a danger even to the classified systems that we have. The Department of Defense literally every day is fending off attacks from Russia and from China and from hackers around the world who seek access to those systems. And the deterrence of those kinds of attacks has to be strengthened. We need a policy on what constitutes an attack on the United States. 
when cyber is involved. And we need to respond equivalently, in kind, and deter and prevent those kinds of cyber attacks because they are a threat to all of our servers and including even our electoral system. I've advocated that our electoral system should be considered potentially as a critical infrastructure that is entitled to special protection along with utilities and our financial system and other kinds of critical infrastructure. Mr. Carter, you have one minute. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, obviously, I would, I would say, yes, we need to go after uh, pr providing resources to combat cyber terrorism, cyber war. We understand that's important. Uh, with respect to Hillary Clinton, as we spoke in a minute ago, uh, it is important that we handle, you know, people here who deal with classified information inappropriately. You know, I, I think they should investigate along the way and find out more information about the emails. And if she was uh, somebody who did something wrong, we'd challenge her on that. Now, I would, I would caution, too, everybody listening out there, I don't think for a minute that our electoral system right now is in jeopardy because of what's happening across the world. I mean, we have a, a lot of local people who run these elections, especially in Connecticut. So I caution people to understand that we have good people uh, all over the state of Connecticut right now who do these uh, operations for our elections individually, and they're not hooked into some great big mainframe, and I'm not worried about cyber warfare in those cases yet. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pay attention to the news and see what's happen what happens next. Our next question goes to Mr. Blumenthal first, and it's a two-part abortion question. Many states require parental permission or parental notification for a girl under the legal age to get an abortion. Connecticut is not one of those states, as you know. To the parents of underage girls watching today, why shouldn't they be told if their child is getting an abortion? And Senator Blumenthal, you have said that you want abortion to be safe and rare. In 2012, one of the more recent years for statistics, 12,000 abortions were performed in Connecticut, an average of 31 a day. Do you consider that to be rare, and what are you doing to reduce that number, or is that number okay with you? Abortion should be safe, rare, and legal. And the law of the land is that these decisions are to be made by women individually in consultation with their clergy and their family and others who are involved. But it should be their decision, not the government interfering. And those health care choices are vital, not only as a matter of constitutional law, but as a matter of public policy. And I have been a staunch advocate of a woman's right to health care, right to choose, right to reproductive rights. Since my days as a law clerk on the United States Supreme Court, when I worked for Harry Blackman, who authored Roe v. Wade before I was his law clerk. And then as Attorney General, I have help to protect the clinics. I helped to write a statute that embodies the standards of Roe v. Wade. And so I think a woman who faces this decision ought to be making this decision on her own, deciding whether she wants to consult her parents and doing so if she wishes to do so, but without the government telling her what to do. Women's rights are under siege in Washington. There is a constant attack against them there, and I've helped to lead the effort to protect them in the United States Senate, just as I did when I was Attorney General. But they are under siege in state legislatures around the country, which is why I wrote the Women's Health Protection Act, which would bar those kinds of threatening measures that pretend to protect women's health care by setting clinic widths of hallways and admitting privileges 
but in fact present obstacles to a woman's exercise of her constitutional rights, which I will staunchly Thank advocate and defend. Mr. Carter, you have two minutes. Sure, and uh, you know, that is, that is an important question. So first, um, I do recognize the woman's right to choose. It is guaranteed by our Constitution under the 14th Amendment, and I don't think we should be going after that. There's no question about it. Uh, but to your point about what should we do or, or whether or not we should uh, decrease abortions, I would say yes. Obviously, we want to make sure fewer people go through that. And I think the way to do that is through education. You know, um, we, we talked about the importance of a woman's right to choose and for her to be able to talk to her family and her clergy and people who are important to her. It's important that they have all the information available. So I think that, you know, we need to make sure as legislators and as uh, in, in state legislatures and in the federal government as a U.S. Senator that I make sure I'm making sure, I'm making sure people have all the information available about adoptive services, about all the options available to somebody. And that it's done on an even playing field. That, you know, all the information and, it's, and like, he, like my opponent mentions here, Senator, you're, you're right on the money when you say you don't want pretend or trickery or things being unequal. And I don't support that either. Too, too often, that's what leads to problems in Washington. And when we have these important issues, we need to make sure we're handling it as a very fair way and the government is not stepping in and telling people what to do. Mr. Blumenthal, you can rebut for one minute. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, this issue really goes to the core of what I've tried to do in Washington, which is stand up for people when powerful special interests try to get their way. And women are entitled to make these choices on their own about contraception, about having a child. And every time Planned Parenthood has been under threat, and it's been five, six times. I have stood with Planned Parenthood and advocated for them because Planned Parenthood provides education, contraception services to enable women to avoid pregnancy if that's their choice. In fact, only a tiny fraction of what Planned Parenthood does involves abortion. A lot of it is education so that, in fact, abortion will be safe, legal, and rare. Thank you, sir. Mr. Carter, this question is for you. I think the average American voter feels very frustrated with some of what is perceived to be gridlock in Washington. Uh, those bills that are raised, uh, many do not get debated, many do not get voted on. What would you do if elected to be more productive and make Congress more productive? You know, uh Everybody's frustrated with Washington. I think the approval rating right now is probably 14 to 11 percent or something like that, and it, it's a huge issue. Uh, you know, one of the problems is, is is when we talk about these different bills and things thrown out there. We we just mentioned Planned Parenthood, good example, because recently, you know, as we spoke about uh, in the news here oh, a few months ago, we we were having the Zika crisis, uh, the Zika uh, virus crisis. Excuse me. And when we were talking about that, you know, basically this came from gridlock in Congress. The way I looked at it, they were putting money out there for Zika, and the, the Democrats took a hold of it as a group, including my opponent. And what they did is say, well, this, we're not giving money to Planned Parenthood specifically because they don't accept Medicaid funding down there in uh, Puerto Rico. Finding a way to give this money through public health channels, which is the way the, the bills were designed, they blocked it and they made it a Planned Parenthood issue, by the way, which I support Planned Parenthood, but they made it a Planned Parenthood issue and they politicized it even more. See, it's that kind of, it's that kind of politics that gets us in trouble because oftentimes you'll come and we'll say we support something important. For instance, my opponent talks about the fact that uh, supports e equal pay for women and they have put the Paycheck Fairness Act 
in front of Congress for the last, I don't know, since 1997. And I believe Senator Blumenthal even supported that act. But it was full of poison pills for the other side that nobody would ever pass it. It was called a message bill. It was just something people could run on when they come home. And then that's ridiculous because even right here in Connecticut, we were able to do a bill like that. And, and I crossed party lines because I'm, the, I'm literally the third most independent voter there. I crossed party lines and I supported a bill which would prohibit employers from retaliating on people talking about their wages and actually put in statute the ability for people to go, uh, for women to go and sue if they think they've been infringed on. So that's the kind of thinking I have. You know, I'm going to abandon the party politics whenever I can. I work with both sides. And I think that's how we're going to get rid of gridlock in Washington. Senator Blumenthal, you have two minutes. Thanks, Susan. Here's what I've seen in a job I love because it gives me the opportunity to fight for the people of Connecticut, even in the face of gridlock and partisan paralysis. What I've seen is that too often special interests get their way. My job has always been to stand up to those special interests and fight for the people of Connecticut for consumers who are ripped off, for women who want equal pay, for equal work, and for our veterans who deserve quality health care, and for all the people of Connecticut who simply want a fair shake. Those special interests with campaign funds that now are often anonymously donated corporations with virtually unlimited access to the political process all too often are responsible for the gridlock that exists there. I will make no apologies for opposing a bill that would have defunded Planned Parenthood as a price for meeting the Zika crisis. In fact, the Zika bill was passed initially with a strong bipartisan majority in the United Senate without those restrictive poison pills. We can reach across the aisle and do better. I have reached across the aisle on measures like the GAIN Act, which cuts the regulatory burdens for pharmaceutical drug companies when they develop new drugs for antibiotic resistance strains of viruses. That GAIN Act, which I did with Senator Corker, Republican of Tennessee, went through the United States Senate and has already been used by a Connecticut company to create drugs and new jobs. Mr. Carter. Well, it's important we talk about special interests. First off, by the way, um, the bill they were talking about did not defund Planned Parenthood. That is not true. It did not give extra funding to them as they were funding through public health channels. And, pa and Planned Parenthood didn't qualify for Medicaid at that point. Didn't take any money away from Planned Parenthood. Just let's be truthful about that. But. We talk about special interests all the day. All right, let's talk about special interests. My opponent has about a million and a half dollars from special interest groups in his campaign fund. And you know, the question is, does that affect every vote? Maybe not. But with respect to taking care of veterans, as he mentioned, my opponent is the one who stood in front of the VA Accountability Act last fall. It was Marco Rubio's bill. He single-handedly blocked it to coming through a vote. And ostensibly because the VA employee unions didn't want him to do it. So, you know, to me, I, I'm all about putting veterans first, and I'm all about making sure, especially at a time where one out of every three phone calls to the suicide hotline rolls over. How do, you, how do you account for that, Senator? When you block that act, and here our veterans are having the toughest time ever Mr. receiving Carter, their Carter, you're care. running out of time. Senator Blumenthal, this is a question that certainly has come up uh, many election cycles, and that regards uh, term limits. 
Patrick Leahy, Senator Leahy of Vermont, has now been in office for 41 years. There are several members of the House uh, who have been there for decades. Do you support term limits? Uh, we have term limits now, Susan. They're called elections. And what I have found is that some of the best Republican members in the House or the Senate have served a long time. Same is true of the Democratic senators. The biggest area where we need reform is campaign finance. The existence of the deluge of dark money where there's no accountability, no reporting, anonymously donated through super PACs, not only at the presidential level, but in United States Senate and congressional races is the greatest threat we have to the integrity of the system. And so uh, I really have not supported term limits because I think the democratic process should work to throw out of office people who have exhausted the patience of the electorate and also who are failing to do their job as well as they should be and as well as their opponent says. I want to just correct the record on something that my opponent has just said. I oppose the Marco Rubio accountability bill because it was unconstitutional, would never have passed muster, and would have helped no one in accountability. I supported an alternative called Veterans First, a bipartisan bill which I crafted with the chairman of the VA committee, Senator Johnny Isaacson of Georgia, he and I, as the ranking member, put together this bill on accountability, on caregivers, on health care, an omnibus bill that will eliminate bonuses for poor performers, remove wrongdoers, and protect whistleblowers. It passed unanimously from the United States Senate VA committee, and I hope to see it become law. Mr. Carter, you have one minute. Thank you. First off, uh, speaking of term limits, um, you know, I think we've gotten to a point where we even see in a race just like this. When you have a powerful incumbent with a lot of funding, a lot of time behind them, um, it is very difficult for people with good ideas to come up and challenge. In fact, this is the first opportunity I've had to have a debate and watch my opponent actually answer questions. My gosh, even Trump gave three debates. But I'll tell you what, you know, I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is the, uh, is the fact that we can't, in our democratic process, do term limits. If the United States Congress and the Senate want to get together and do a constitutional amendment and change the term limits, I would be very supportive of that. I think the distrust at this point in Washington, uh, or about Washington, is very clear that people don't trust Washington. So I think it's important that we do consider term limits because maybe it's about time that we don't have the same people going to Washington year after year after year. Now I'll also say this, if, uh, if you work so hard to help the veterans and you blocked the VA Accountability Act last year, uh, how can we still have so many problems with our veterans? I mean, it's become kind of a punchline now that every politician wants to talk about how they help veterans, but nothing gets done. You do have another minute. Apparently, it was not your turn for a rebuttal, so if you'd like to add a minute, please do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, no, that's fine. I mean, I think I think I made my answer very clear. Uh, you know, a lot of times we, in the, in the legislature, we talk about we talk about veterans all the time, and, and all of us want to help veterans. By the way, I do not for a minute think my that Senator Blumenthal doesn't want to help veterans. I get that, but we don't make it the priority. And then when we when we don't make it really the priority, but we come back and say we do, that's the problem I have because, you know, Senator, you've. A, you made a career out of fighting for the little guy. And, and most of the time, I feel like you're fighting us. You're fighting the little guy. Because, you know, none of these things ever get fixed after 30 years in service. So I think it's time to give somebody else a shot. Senator Blumenthal, now you have a minute for a rebuttal. 
Thank you, Susan. Uh, let me first of all thank my opponent for his service, as I do every veteran. As a veteran, I respect that service. And I have worked in the United States Senate and before I went to the United States Senate for this country to keep faith with its veterans. Two of my sons have served. One is serving now. The other was in the Marine Corps in Afghanistan and is back safely. And I have a special affinity for this problem. That's the reason why in the wake of the Arizona debacle, I helped to lead the Veterans Choice Bill, which created more choices for veterans to go outside the VA healthcare system. I wrote a measure with John McCain, Veterans Suicide Prevention Act, because 20 veterans in this country still take their own lives every day. And I'm going to continue advocating and working for the Veterans First Bill to make health care and accountability even better. Thank you, sir. Mr. Carter, the next question goes to you. In five states, the issue of whether to legalize marijuana for recreational use will be on the ballot next month, including <laughs> neighboring Massachusetts. Four states have already legalized it, yet in the eyes of the federal government, it's illegal. Do you think the federal government should legalize marijuana, and do you support the use of recreational marijuana? So, uh, you know, this is one of those interesting, um, coming from the legislature, obviously I've been in the position to have this question posed to me a number of times, uh, specifically about medical marijuana. You know, along the line, I've, I realize that medical marijuana has shown that there's some real promise for people. Um, there's even promise with people who suffer from, you know, very debilitating conditions, uh, you know, seizures and such. But the, the, the use of um, recreational marijuana is a real struggle for me. Uh, and here's why. Number one, I don't think we have the ability to... Um, to really or, to, to regulate it in such a way that we make sure that we understand the ramifications on people who are operating machinery, who are police officers, and, and how do we handle that to know to the degree that they're maybe under the influence or not. That's a problem. I also understand that if, if we support recreational use, then for anybody under 25 years old out there who's using it regularly, it's proven to cause a problem uh, in your development. And I think that's a real issue from a public policymaker. Now, I'll also want to say I understand the other side. You know, there's a, there's a strong libertarian streak in me that says, you know, why are we regulating a plant like that? Why are we uh, putting all the money into uh, defending uh, or putting people in jail for it? And, and I think that's a whole other issue we have to handle separately. And from the federal government side, I think that's what we should be looking at is, is how do we handle law enforcement activities with respect to marijuana, but still not let the drug dealers off the hook? Uh, I am not in a position yet where I'm going to uh, advocate for legalizing it. Um, I am open-minded that I will listen to hearings and I'll listen to the, uh, I'd say, the important people across the country who have a, an opinion on this. Uh, it is something we have to face because we have some real problems with marijuana. Mr. Blumenthal. Dennis, uh, we are in the midst of the greatest opioid abuse and heroin addiction epidemic ever to face this nation. And we need to act much more aggressively and robustly to save lives. I held roundtables around the state of Connecticut, more than 10 of them, and they were heartbreaking and gut-wrenching as I listened to stories of young people in recovery who started on opioids when they broke a bone or had wisdom teeth removed and were prescribed Percocet or Vicodin or OxyContin. I sued the maker of OxyContin, Purdue Pharma, when I was Attorney General because of inadequate labeling. and we prevailed in that lawsuit. And as a result of those roundtables, I
came up with a report with specific recommendations, including guidelines on opioid prescriptions, better training for pain management to prescribers and caregivers, a crackdown, use of law enforcement to crack down on the drug trade. But the law enforcement officials told me, and I know, we're not going to arrest our way out of this crisis. So we need more treatment and more investment in treatment facilities. What I also heard in those roundtables is that legalization of marijuana will in no way solve this crisis. It may only aggravate it. And that gives me pause. As much as I may support medicinal use of marijuana, I would oppose for now its legalization because I think this nation needs to do more than we've done already to save those lives. The Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act passed the United States Congress by an overwhelming bipartisan majority. Now it needs adequate funding. Thank you, Mr. Bloomfield. Mr. Carter, you have one minute. Uh, thank you very much. You know, uh, with respect to legalizing marijuana, it doesn't sound like we're far off base from each other, but I will say this. With respect to the opioid addiction issues and, and people getting heroin overdoses and things like that, it is a plague in our state. It's a plague in our country. We all know that. And it's more important that we do more than strongly worded letters and that we do more than roundtables. While, obviously, I've talked to people in our districts as well about this, but we need to make sure that we put things in place that actually address the issue. Uh, for my six years in the legislature, one of the things I I've been behind all the way is how we manage our, our uh, prescription drug monitoring program in the state to make sure we're going after people who are doctor shopping and taking that medicine and selling it on the street to somebody else. So there are ways to do it and work with, with these companies and work with uh, the government to make this work. Now, I would take objection to the fact that in, in everything that my opponent talks about, he talks about suing somebody. You know, I'm a believer that we work with companies, that we work with um, every, every stakeholder there is to come up with things that, that will actually solve the problem problem working together and not create adversarial relationships with business, Mr. unless they're truly a bad actor. Mr. Carter, thank you. Our next question goes to Senator Blumenthal. Aetna has essentially pulled out of the Affordable Care Act, commonly called Obamacare, citing the cost. Many are saying the health care program needs to be improved to survive. Some say it should be replaced. Others are saying it should be repealed. If elected, what specific action should be taken regarding President Obama's signature legislation? Uh, a key question. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, I've advocated that there be improvements in the Affordable Care Act, but not that it be repealed. We can't turn the clock back to a time when millions of people were denied coverage under their health care policies because they had supposed pre-existing conditions. Or women were charged more simply because they were women, victims of discrimination by those insurance companies, or a time when children couldn't be on their policies. Now they can be until they're 26 years old. Those reforms and others have enabled millions of people to gain effective coverage. And I'm not willing to throw those people out of health insurance. Now there need to be improvements. The cost of medical care needs to be reduced. And one of the major costs are pharmaceutical drugs. That is why I have advocated reducing the cost of pharmaceutical drugs through negotiation with Medicare. Right now, <coughs> Medicare is barred from negotiating drug prices, raising their costs. The VA can negotiate, Medicare cannot. Another example of profiteering, we've seen very recently 
in the state of Connecticut and the country. My lands increase in its costs of EpiPens. 600% astronomic price rise. I've asked for an investigation. The federal government is doing it, both criminal and civil. But in the meantime, I'm going to continue pressure on my land to reduce the cost of EpiPen. There needs to be more competition on those exchanges, more competitors in the healthcare market, and that has to be another improvement. But lowering costs for small businesses, a major goal, lowering the costs for small businesses and providing support in greater subsidies so people can afford it. Thank you, Mr. Blumenthal. Mr. Carter, you have two minutes. Thank you. I know, I know there's a lot of debate on whether Obamacare should be replaced, repealed, or whatever you want to do to it. I mean, the problem is we, we know it's collapsing. We know it doesn't work, so let's move forward. You know, we need to change Obamacare into something that works. That, uh, you know, we know we want to keep the things that are important goals with respect to pre-existing conditions. Look, we understand that. We want to make sure that health care is affordable for everybody in Connecticut and everybody across the country. We know that. So let's get a system in place that works. <laughs> you know, what, everybody gets in a fight when they're going to repeal it. Well, why not, you know, take some of the fixes that were, were proposed here just a couple of years, that, years ago that Senator Blumenthal voted against, which actually cost money to our own hospitals in the state of Connecticut. With respect to you know, uh, increasing funding available to community health care centers and things like that, and we know what hospitals have been under, especially under our own governor, uh, how difficult it is in health care. You know, we need to make sure that this program works for folks by creating something that looked more for fee-for-service years ago, where the decisions are made between a patient and a provider, where that's where care is rationed and that's where the decisions are made, and we get behind that decision. And we make sure that you know, the health care exchange or whatever we have in place is something that's available to everybody and affordable. We've, we've watched small businesses and, their, and families' deductibles go through the roof as well as their premiums, and it doesn't have to be that way. But my, my point is, we need to act now, and, and I don't know why there's so much gridlock in Washington over this, because both sides evidently say we have to fix it. You stand right here, but we haven't fixed it. Now with respect to Milan, you know, it's interesting to me that from 2009 till now that, you know, Senator Blumenthal you know, supported Obamacare, which raised the cost of the drug with the EpiPen, mandated that go to every school around the country, again, rising the excuse me, raising the price. But then, you know, now all of a sudden, where were you all this time while the price was going up? You know, I think we should be working with these companies all along to make sure they get generics to market, to make sure they have opportunities to lower their costs. And we don't do it through this heavy-handed, I'm going to come out and sue you, and I'm going to crush your business to make press for all my constituents. Thank you, Mr. Carter. Mr. Blumenthal, you have one minute to rebut. Here are the facts, Dennis. I've strongly supported these improvements in the Affordable Care Act from the time I came to Congress. The votes have been about repealing, completely eliminating the Affordable Care Act. More than 60 times in the House of Representatives, time after time in the Senate, the votes have been to repeal it because that's what the Republican majority wanted over these last two years, not to help improve it and fix its defects. That has to be the goal. And I'm going to continue championing ever, efforts to keep down the cost of pharmaceutical drugs. They need to be made available. And that's why I was a leader in providing them in our schools, because EpiPens are life-saving. When a young child has an allergic reaction, they can literally save lives. And I'm going to continue to advocate. Thank you.
Mr. Carter, this question has to do with jobs and the concern uh, that many companies are finding it much more affordable to either relocate their headquarters or their operations overseas because labor is cheaper. The Republican nominee for president has proposed punishing companies or some kind of disincentive for companies who do that. Do you support that? And is that possible? Well, um, okay, so, so first part of the question is, yes, jobs are moving overseas, and we have to find a way to keep them here. Um, I don't think it's entirely because of labor costs, because we know that if we kept the corporate tax within limits here, or we lowered the corporate taxes, and we got rid of lip, loopholes to make it, I'd say, fairer for all companies, and they had a, a, a tax structure and a regulatory environment that was made sense, and that was something that would be predictable that they could count on, a lot of those companies would come here voluntarily. In fact, I've mentioned before, we would be our own tax haven. So I don't think we have to always use the heavy-handed approach and say, we're going to punish. Uh, like Senator Blumenthal mentioned a moment ago, we were talking about the Bring Home, the bring home Jobs bill. You know, in that bill, it had a piece that would just not allow people to take advantage of a tax uh, deduction for moving their company overseas. Well, that's not the way it works for companies. You know, they see a better tax rate. It's not like they pick up all their stuff and take it. What they do is they go over there and they build their facilities and they build their production and that's what we got to keep people from doing. So until we get the tax, uh, you know, the, the rate down below 15% or something like that and make it reasonable, uh, that's what's going to help us. And, and here's the other part. We talk a lot about corporate taxes, but we have to understand that corporate taxes themselves bring in probably less than 10% of the entire federal revenue. So why are we so focused on that when actually that's something that would actually help get people back here? So that's how we get those jobs. Now, we, we also have to reduce regulation here at home. We have to get things and barriers out of the way for people. And until we find a way to do that here, which, by the way, even as a state legislator, I've done that. For those of you who may not know out there, we've tried for many years to get something called a growler bill, where you could actually go to a restaurant and you could take home a 64-ounce uh, jug of draft beer, because otherwise you couldn't get draft beer anyway. We finally got something silly like that removed from regulation where now people can do it. And it meant $2 million to the state in taxes. It meant a thriving craft beer market in the state does well. And it also means that people have a new product that they couldn't get anywhere else. That's when we talk about removing regulation. Senator Blumenthal, you have two minutes for your Addressing that question directly, Susan, our tax code is riddled with loopholes, special breaks, giveaways, to big corporations and special interests, sweetheart deals. And one of them concerns moving headquarters overseas to so-called tax havens, whether in the Netherlands or Ireland. My land, the maker of EpiPens, ironically, was one of the companies that moved overseas in that way. And they avoid taxes to this country. Moving jobs overseas is a different kind of loophole that needs to be closed because companies can deduct the expenses and then keep their profits overseas. I proposed that they be enabled to bring those profits back, maybe at a lower tax rate, but that they be required to invest in an infrastructure bank that would be a public-private partnership investing in our roads and bridges and rail. There are ways to close those loopholes and create jobs and drive our economy forward. But those two loopholes are only a fraction of the ones that should be closed. The deductions for the big oil companies, the write-offs for companies that give multi-million dollar bonuses to their executives, the kinds of loopholes that basically deprive taxpayers 
of what we deserve and don't benefit economic progress because a lot of corporations are paying much higher taxes. We should reward investment, broaden the tax incentives for investment in capital machinery and plants such as I have advocated and we have those measures going forward as well as in renewables such as wind and solar. We need to extend it to Mr. fuel Blumenthal. cells which are made in Connecticut. Mr. Carter, you have a one-minute rebuttal. <laughs> well, I'm having a 2010 flashback. I don't still think the senator doesn't know how to create a job. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, there are a lot of complicated tax issues out there that we all talk about, but the, the bottom line is it's all talk. You know, what I'm seeing at the federal level right now is a lot of gridlock and a lot of people who will talk about the loopholes, but they're, they're really not acting on any of them because they're too busy, you know, doing other things. Um, I've taken on my opponent many times about the fact that he's fighting for somebody. He's always out there, you know, taking on an important issue, shark fins, saline solution, whatever the issue of the day may be. But meanwhile, we are suffering from jobs hemorrhaging from this state, and it's because of the fact that all these things we're talking about never get done in Washington. And I think the American people are that's part of the trust issue that we have down in D.C. So, you know, it's easy to stand here and talk about all the things we supported. I'd really be interested to go through every one of them and find out if they were actually in a bill that mattered. I mean, like I already said, the, the, Bring, Home, the Bring Home Jobs Act we talked about was a total farce. And that's where we're talking about one of these major loopholes. And there are many others to look at. Thank you very much. That concludes some of our formal questions. And what we wanted to do was end our debate with a few minutes on some rapid fire questions. And we're going to start with you, Senator Blumenthal. We want to know, in your opinion, who is the best U.S. Senator in Connecticut history? The best U.S. Senator in Connecticut's history. Uh, I think that uh, probably Abe Ribicoff. I want to follow up on a couple quite with the, with this rapid fire that you avoided earlier in the broadcast. And number one, do you think the number of abortions in Connecticut that year, 12,031 a day, is that considered rare? Mr. Blumenthal, you first. Uh, you know, Dennis, you're asking me the question. Yes. Rare uh, or I, not? Is it, it, I think that the number of abortions isn't the measure of the effectiveness of our constitutional law. It's individuals exercising the right of choice. That's what's important, that constitutional right. I'm going to fight for that right. And by the way, I'm also going to fight to bring jobs home. That Good was uh, Mr. a real act that accomplished real measures what if it is passed by here, the United Mr. States. Carter, I just don't want to speak over my opponent, but uh, no, that is not rare. All right, our next question. Do you support Congressman Larson's plan to build a tunnel under the Connecticut River linking Hartford to East Hartford? Mr. Carter. Uh, I'll have to see all the details. I mean, I think it's a, it's a big idea. It's going to cost a lot of money. Got to see the details. Mr. Blumenthal. It's infrastructure. I think it ought to be seriously considered. It will create jobs, and it will improve our transportation system. Whether it's cost-effective should be determined. Senator Blumenthal, role model. Who do you look up to? Uh, I look up to role models in this country. Uh, but also abroad. Pope Francis is someone whom I greatly admire. This is going to be kind of funny. Uh, James Earl Jones, of all people. Here's a guy who overcome a major stuttering problem to be one of the greatest voices we'll always remember. Uh, and I look at somebody like that who has that intestinal fortitude. Mr. Carter, several high schools in Connecticut use Indian or an Indian-themed name as their mascot. Do you think it's offensive, and should they change it? Uh, it's not offensive, and they should not change it. Mr. Blumenthal. I think that they should change it because it certainly offends some people to have Native American 
images and identities as mascots, and I've advocated that the Redskins change their name as well. Mr. Carter, several buildings in Connecticut are named for slave owners like Calhoun College at Yale. Should that be renamed? Um, I don't think we should go back and be renaming building, buildings based on our past. I think what we should be is looking forward and handle some of the important issues that are, are prevalent in our society with respect to race. I think going back and renaming buildings is, is not going to accomplish that. Senator Blumenthal? These decisions have to be made by individual institutions, and I don't think there's a broad rule that can be applied to everyone, but in certain instances, like Calhoun College, I think Yale's well advised to rename it. Mr. Blumenthal, Hillary Clinton has said Donald Trump is a racist. Is he? Uh, Donald Trump is many things that, in my view, disqualify him from the presidency. He has mocked people with disabilities. He has indicated, certainly, his prejudice. He's a misogynist. He has demeaned women. And racism certainly is a plausible label to be attached to him. Mr. Carter. You know, um, I don't necessarily think somebody's a racist. I know it's about character. I've taken on my opponent with his character with respect to his, you know, talking about Vietnam service all those years. But uh, I do not think that necessarily makes him a racist. And we have quickly for one more, perhaps. And what do you do in your free time? What are your hobbies and interests? Uh, was that for me first? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously, I, uh, I love spending time with my kids when they're around. Uh, I've got a, a great dog at home, Molly, who she's a rescue. I like to walk with her and do some things like that. I like to read. Uh, I love to fly more, but you know, since I left the Air Force, I haven't had time or the money. Senator Blumenthal. Uh, I love spending time with my wife, Cynthia, who is here today, as well as our four children and uh, they are truly the pride and joy of our lives. Donald Trump has called Hillary Clinton a liar. Is she, Mr. Carter? I think she's dishonest, yes. Mr. Blumenthal. No, she is not a liar. I think Hillary Clinton is going to be a Thank president you. that Thank stands you. up for ordinary people. Susan? Can we ask for, do you have a gun permit, Mr. Carter? I do. Carter? You do. Mr. Senator Blumenthal? Blumenthal? No. Using letter grades, how would you grade Dan Malloy's performance as governor, Mr. Blumenthal? I don't give grades to fellow public officials. He's working hard. He has a tough job. Mr. Well, he was quick to tell me I had an honors grade from the NRA, which I'm not sure if I do or not. But, uh, you know, I think, I think Malloy has uh, definitely failed the state. Do you want the governor to run for a third term, Mr. Blumenthal? That's the governor's decision. And more importantly, the decision of the people of Connecticut. I hope that the people of Connecticut will choose me for a second term. Mr. Thank Carter. You. I, uh, I, I, do think, I do think he should run again because I think it's going to be a very strong year for Republicans because obviously he's not done what's right by our state and hopefully I'm there as a United States Senator to watch that race. Do you support early voting? I do. I do. All right, that is our time for this Sunday morning. We thank you both for being with us, our candidates, Richard Blumenthal and Dan Carter.